Blog Talk Radio. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for holding this hearing. I, I think everyone here shares a number of common objectives, wanting to ensure that, that all federal prisoners are held in a humane manner that respects their inherent dignity as human beings, uh, and at the same time that upholds the objectives of sound penological policy, uh, both allowing an opportunity for rehabilitation when possible, and ensuring to the maximum extent possible the safety of other inmates. Mr. Samuels, I appreciate uh, your service for being here today and and, and and engaging in this important discussion. I'd like to ask some questions to further understand your testimony and, and, and the scope uh, of solitary confinement within the federal prison system. You testified there are roughly 215,000 inmates in the federal system, and that compares to about 1.2 million incarcerated in various states. And am I correct that the overwhelming majority of the 215,000 in the system are in the general population at any given time? Given time? Yes, sir. The majority of the inmates are in general population. Also, the majority of the inmates in our system spend their entire period of incarceration in general population. We're only talking about a very, very small percentage. Right now, 6.5% out of our entire population is in some form of restrictive housing. And when you break that number down, as I've mentioned, administrative detention, which is temporary, and also with the disciplinary segregation, they're given a set number of days and or months that they have to serve. In a prison environment, and I would hope that everyone understands it's all about order. And if we do not have order, we cannot provide programs. We're constantly locking down our institutions. Since the hearing in 2012, we have reduced our restrictive housing population by over 25%. Within the last year, we have gone from 13.5% to 6.5%. So the reductions are occurring. We are only interested in placing individuals in restrictive housing when there is a legitimate reason and justification. Those who say to me, stick to civil rights, I have another answer. Others can do what they want to do. That's their business. Other civil rights leaders, for various reasons, refuse or can't take a stand or have to go along with the administration. That's their business, isn't it? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to AJC Radio, where we are in search for justice. And I'll tell you right now, ladies and gentlemen, that 
if you were looking for a Broadway production tonight, I can guarantee you that's not the case. But uh, we are talking about some issues that are important. My name is Lamont Banks, along with Cliff Stewart, Lisa Stewart, and the AJC radio team. And I'll tell you right now, uh, this is going to be a humdinger. Hang on to your seat, folks. AJC radio kicks off in just a moment. Gentlemen, AJC Radio. Topic tonight that we're dealing with this evening the corruption of the Bureau of Prisons, known as BOP. And I'll tell you right now, folks, if you're wondering if you need some ammonia, some comet, and some cleaner to disinfect the corruption that is taking place in this country, I'll tell you right now, it's going to get very serious on this program as we bring tonight uh, a very special guest by the name of Bernard Carrick. And if you're looking for a legend, if you're looking for someone who is a commander, I'll tell you right now, Mr. Carrick has done some things and is doing some things that can definitely change a society and the way of thinking of the American people. And we're going to have him on this show tonight. And I tell you what, folks, it's going to be informative and very educational. But I tell you what, it's going to be thought-provoking. And we're going to dig into that here momentarily. Again, I'm Lamont Banks along with Lisa Stewart, Cliff Stewart, and uh, how are you folks doing tonight? Doing, doing pretty good, good Lamont. Okay, and uh, Lisa, read our disclaimer for us, would you? Sure. We just want to remind everyone that we are not attorneys and that a just cause does not provide any legal advice. You want to contact your own personal legal advisor for your legal needs. Also, the opinions expressed by callers and guests do not necessarily reflect that of a just cause. And as always, thank you for cho- choosing to spend some time with us and tuning in this evening. All right, Lisa, and thanks for that information. And uh, Cliff, as we begin this journey exposing the corruption of the BOP and Bureau of Prisons, we have found some information based upon what you heard on the top of the show with uh, BOP Director Charles Samuels, Jr., uh, basically uh, stating that there was restricted housing, there was uh, solitary confinement, and yet not only, uh, not even longer than about two weeks ago, uh, Mr. Samuels stated that there was no such thing going on in federal prison. How do we address that? Well, what you got to deal with is one way or the other. Somewhere he lied. Did he lie in 2012? Did he lie in 2014? Or did he lie this year? So somewhere he is lying. I mean, he he uses all these different names for uh, solitary confinement. On one hand, he says it's disciplinary detention segregated housing, restricted housing, and that it only happens with legitimate reasons and with justification. Then this year he says there are no solitary confinement, that none of these programs even exist. So somewhere uh, Director Samuels of the BOP lied standing in front of Congress. Well, there's no other way to put it. Ladies and gentlemen of America, if if it's an untruth, and a year ago he made this statement, and now he makes the statement, that uh, absolutely there are restricted housing, but only for a certain type of individual. Uh, but he will not address the fact of the abuse and the torture that goes on behind the wall. And I'll tell you right now, ladies and gentlemen, I don't care who's doing the corruption. The buck stops at the BOP. Is that right, Cliff? Absolutely. I mean, they are they are the uh, you know they're the they're the authority holders. So you can't you can't say well 
there's something because in one of his hearings he said, well, he he doesn't know anything about that. How how is something going on in your house that you take care of that you don't know about? It is your job as a director to direct all of the federal prisons. To direct BOP, you're supposed to know what's going on, and you definitely cannot stand in front of Congress and not have valid information. Otherwise, you get found lying, as he did uh, a few months ago. And not to get ahead of ourselves tonight, we dedicate this program tonight, and we will do this going forward, to the wrongfully convicted IRP-6. AJC Radio is here for one reason, and that is in search for justice. And without the injustice of the IRP-6, as we fight for justice and seek to bring the message of justice around the world, we honor the IRP-6. Those men are David Banks, Dave Zapolo, Kendrick Barnes, Clint Stewart, Demetrius Harper, and Gary Walker. Uh, wrongfully convicted, languishing in prison for the last three years, and that is the purpose of AJC Radio. And we remind our listeners of that tonight uh, for the IRP-6. We ask you to keep them in your prayers and your thoughts as AJC Radio and a Just Cause organization continues to seek justice and the exoner- and the release of these men, uh, ironically, who hold the key to the, uh, to, to the uh, crisis of ISIS right here on our homeland and on our soil. So we say that with the utmost respect. Uh, Lisa, as we uh, get into this regarding uh, Mr. Samuels, and we're not going to go there necessarily right now, mm-hmm. but just your thoughts on a situation where we have a director not an assistant, not a staff member. This is the director of the Bureau of Prisons who has basically lied. When you lie to Congress, ladies and gentlemen, you lie to the American people because those are our elected officials. And he basically said an untruth. And I remember looking at something yesterday, Lisa, that uh, where, where uh, Director Samuels did not even have or know the dimensions of the solitary confinement and you know what, Lamont, I think the problem is that Director, Director Samuels does not care about what's going on in the prison. He's doing a job that he was hired to do. He's collecting the paycheck and he's moving on. He's not paying attention to what's going on. Yeah, I believe he absolutely sat there and lied. Uh, not, no question about it. He just lied straight up, straight out, just lied to, to Congress. That's the bottom line. He just, he just lied, period. But if he cared about what was going on in the these prisons, then he wouldn't have to be sitting up there lying. He could actually just do the way he's supposed to do Oh, without question. And uh, the bottom line is, I remember uh, Senator uh, Al Franken uh, was asking the question to him. He said, it, and I got the clip, we'll play that later in the program. He said, did I ask the question wrong? What are the size of the solitary confinement cells? The director of the Bureau of Prisons that oversee federal prisons did not know the dimensions of cells in solitary confinement. I bet if we stuck him in one for a while, he'd get the dimensions. Well, I guarantee you he would probably be able to write the dimensions over and over again, as you did in school, uh, on the chalkboard. Um, I tell you what is very interesting in that. Uh, uh, so we're going to get into some local news right now. Um, and uh, Lisa, what's going on in the news right now? Well, we're looking at these uh, right now. The main thing that we were looking at today was the shooting. In, I believe it was Illinois, where they had an officer who was shot, and they've been out searching for the three suspects that they're looking for, and they've got the U.S. Marshals, and they've got um, the FBI helping do the search. I don't believe, the last time I looked at it today, they hadn't found anybody yet. Uh, but that's what, that was the main point of news today. My, my thinking on that is 
Has, is anyone asking the question, why are policemen being killed? Why? You keep, keep getting these popping up now. So you're constantly hearing about an officer being shot. Why are these officers constantly being shot? My take on it is that people are deciding that they've had enough and they're going to get some payback. Because the office, we've had so many policemen that, are, that have crossed the line and go out there and are hurting people and killing people for no reason. People that haven't done anything wrong and just looking for a reason to hurt people. I think people are just saying enough is enough. And we're going to start. We're going to start retaliating. Well, absolutely. I don't agree with that. I don't think that's what you should be doing. But it, I do understand where that could come from. No, no, absolutely. And uh, you know what I mean. This is this is Cliff. Your thoughts on that before I chime in on it. Well, you you look at everything that's happened in the nation, and you look at the fact that what the common uh, citizen is seeing is that there is no there is no justice in America. That if a police officer. Uh, shoot someone, if it's a person of color especially, that even if they bring that police officer under up on charges, that it's kind of like the uh, par for the course, that officer is going to be is gonna be allowed to get off because he's going to say, well, I felt that my, my life was in danger. I felt that I was being threatened by the person that I shot. Now, how is your life in danger when the, the person does not have a gun, they don't have a weapon? And, you know, uh, especially if a person is running in the opposite direction and a police officer shoots this person in the back, how then does the officer feel like they are threatened? It, it absolutely makes no sense. And to Lisa's point, the citizens are now saying, you know, I'm feeling like nobody's on my side. When I bring a charge up against a police officer, I'm retaliated against as a citizen and I get no justice. And in, in that particular event, then they feel like there is no recourse except I need to take the law into my own hands. And that is why you see what's going on now. I mean, you got Chicago, a police was killed. You got, um, you know, Harris County, Texas, a sheriff's deputy was gunned down on Friday. He was fueling his patrol car and someone felt like I'm going to uh, kill a cop. I mean, all over the country now, in, in Louisiana, you know, a state uh, off police officer there was killed. All over the country, people are saying, you know, enough is enough. And, and sure, we don't we don't uh, condone anyone going taking another person's life. We don't condone violence against law enforcement. But law enforcement has to open their eyes and look and say, you know, why are these type of actions being taken against law enforcement? They are supposed to be the protectors and the servers of their communities, why are their communities attacking them? That's well, the question that needs to be addressed. Well, Cliff, I couldn't have said it better. The bottom line is, and this is the point that people don't want to take a look at, but I'll tell you right now, this is reality in the United States of America right now, and you can call it what you want to call it, ladies and gentlemen. Folks are feeling a need to retaliate. Uh, and again, we don't excuse any type of violence against officers, against peace officers, against anybody. We don't, we don't, we don't uh, condone that in any way. But I'll tell you right now, America has to answer the tough questions, and that is, why are people feeling a need to attack cops? Well, I'll give you one point. Cops have been killing citizens, black, young black men, across this country for the last several months without issue, without any type of consequence, Without a, with a grand jury coming back saying, oh, we, we, we cannot bring down an indictment for the murder and the killing of black men across this country. And again, make no mistake about it, AJC Radio is not a condoner 
of violence and taking the law into your own hands. But I will tell you, until you deal with the issue that faces this nation, and that is cops going, getting set free, cops not being held accountable, cops not having the, 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 the justice given to them for taking a life. This is the retaliation that happens in America. I'll tell you, folks, hang on to your seats tonight. We're going to take a quick break, and uh, we're going to be coming back very, very shortly, bringing in uh, a Mr. Bernard Carrick. And I'll tell you right now, hold on to your seats, and you better strap in tight, because this gentleman is someone that knows his business, and that is the judicial system. Hang in there, ladies and gentlemen. This is AJC Radio bringing the message of justice all around the world. We'll be right back. Studies show that it can take an exoneree over three years to receive compensation for a wrongful conviction. Over 25% of exonerees get nothing. That's right. That's right. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. And of those and who of do receive do something, something, over 80%, over 80% receive less than $50,000 for each year of wrongful imprisonment. This form this of injustice, injustice must be must fought, fought with legislation. We invite we you today invite to, get to get involved now. now. Call or just call toll-free toll at 1-855-529-4252. To join us in the fight for justice. That number again is one eight five 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 two nine four two four two five two. Adequate compensation for those who have been wrongfully convicted and in prison is a small way of correcting a gross injustice. Join us, won't you? For the fight. For the fight. That change, that change will finally will come. Here are 50 Here. white guys. Here are 50 black guys. Here's how many white guys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The chances the amount chance to amount one out of 14. No, here's now, how many black guys can expect the same thing. The chances are one out of three. Why? Why? Lots of reasons. Lots. It's complicated, it's compl- but one thing is clear. There's a racial bias at every level of the criminal justice system. When blacks and whites commit the same kind of crimes, blacks are more likely to be arrested. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they're more likely to serve longer and longer. Look at the numbers in America's so-called war on drugs. About 14% of America's drug users are black, they're black. as are about a quarter of drug sellers. Yet black is 34% of people arrested for drug crimes. And those convicted of drug crimes, 46% are black. By the time we factor in sentencing, there are actually more black drug offenders than white state prisons and federal prisons. In the end, the incarceration rate for drug crimes is 10 times higher for blacks than it is for whites. These are the facts. Racial disparities in America's war on drugs are one big reason that one of three black men can expect to be in prison in their life in their lifetime.
Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. And I'm Lamont Banks, along with Cliff Stewart, Lisa Stewart. And folks, tonight we undress a very unpopular subject, and we uncover some things that may not be too nice to look at, but we're talking about the corruption at the highest level of the justice system, outside of the Department of Justice, but of the federal criminal justice system, dealing with the Bureau of Prisons. And we start the conversation tonight as a result of uh, BOP Director Charles Samuels, Jr., uh, basically giving false testimony to members of Congress, uh, stating very, very clearly that there are no solitary confinement procedures, Cliff, used in the federal prison, uh, which you didn't have to be born uh, yesterday to know uh, that that's not the case. And every person that's done time, whether it's the state prison or the federal prison, it is clear that solitary confinement, by, by his own words a year ago, is used in the federal system of incarceration. And that's the thing that you really can't get about what he said. It's like, well, if you said a year ago that there is solitary confinement, and whatever percentage you use, whatever percentage, if it's 1%, and you say that there is solitary confinement, then you come back and say that solitary confinement has not been used in the Bureau of Prisons, then how do you expect for the American people to believe anything that you say? How do you expect for them to respect you as the director of the Bureau? And even though he's going out, that 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 very well uh, may be the case. But you still, you, we have to have somebody that we can respect when they when they come up and say, yes, you know, this is the man that's running the Bureau of Prisons. When you're talking about that many people that show well-being, their uh, their livelihood, their protection, not only from the inmates but the employees, the families that go there to visit. I mean, who knows what else he's lying about when he's standing up in front of Congress. This is just something that everybody knows there's solitary confinement. Otherwise, there would not be a term called solitary confinement. There wouldn't be, um, you know, other terms that they use, like I mentioned before. Disciplinary detention, that's solitary confinement. Segregated housing, solitary confinement. Restrictive housing, solitary confinement. Everybody who knows anything about the system knows that that's what it is. For him to get up there and lie in front of Congress, I want to see charges brought up against him. I want to see them compare those two statements that he said from this year and last year when he admitted that there was solitary confinement and say, now tell us, when were you lying in front of Congress so we know what charge to bring you up on and what statement to charge you with that? Well, I'll tell you what. um, I mean, that's really troubling. And I'll tell you what. Again, we're talking about people that run the Bureau of Prisons who dictate protocol right. at the Bureau of Prisons. You should know the size of the cells of the men you lock in there for destruction. You are the director. So how can you say we? I feel compassion for that person in solitary confinement when I don't even know what conditions he's living under? We have a clip where Senator Franken, and he's actually, uh, Director Sanders has become a laughing joke to comedians and everybody else in regards to his response of the size of the solitary confinement cell. Let's hear what uh, the next clip has to say about that exchange with uh, uh, BOP Director Samuels. If you don't know a prisoner, or think that you're ever likely to become one, then their safety and health is not going to be high on your list of priorities. 
You don't need to know anything about the conditions that they live in. But you know who should know? Maybe the director of federal prisons. And yet, watch him almost comically struggle to recall a basic detail about one of the most mentally excruciating things prisoners can be subjected to, solitary confinement. How big is a cell? How big is the average cell in solitary? Say the, the average size? Cell, yeah, the size of the cell. How big is it? What is, I'm trying to get this, this is the human thing we're talking about. We've got a lot of statistics. How big is the cell? The average size of a cell is... I guess we're trying to find, you're looking for the, the space of what the... Yes. The dimensions in feet and inches. The size of the cell that a person is kept in. I want to get some idea of... I, I don't know. Am I asking this wrong? And there you go, folks. Wow. I mean, that is for you to be for you to be brought up as a laughingstock on a comedic show about a department that you're supposed to be running the Bureau of Prison. They ask you a simple question, and you turn it into it's like somebody's asking him the moment of inertia on a polyhedragon. You might not know that, <laughs> but as a director of the Bureau of Prison. Why do you not know the size of the well, cell that you have people put in? Well, I'll tell you this right now. It may sound comical, but I'll tell you right now. When folks are making fun of you as a director, that means the buck stops with you. How can you feel or implement change for the people that have died in solitary confinement under your watch? That's unacceptable. Absolutely unacceptable. So when you have people, and everybody's like, but why don't you know that? It tells you the disconnect that this country has, Lisa, with the reality and the tortures that are going on in America right now in prisons. Because there's a problem at the top. That's right. And if the top is messed up, everything below it's going to be messed up. That's nothing's, the bottom line. Nothing's going to work the way it works. It's, it's unbelievable to me. And that's interesting. Uh, to that, and again, we're going to get into deeper conversation about that tonight. Uh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm honestly appalled at what we're saying. So you got a, we got a director in there, and he finally says, comes to the decision that we need to. I, I'm going to step down and spend more time with my family. You're not equipped to do the job. That's the problem. You're not equipped. That's right. Because, and how many people? And, and, and Cliff, I think what they're saying now is that they need to hire somebody, a director of the Bureau of Prisons. Uh, who is from the outside, not from the good old boys that work, not inside the, uh, the Bureau of Prisons who have been nurtured or uh, taught a certain type of behavior that continues this chaos that adds to the problem here in America. So without us getting someone independent of the Bureau of Prisons, then we have a problem. Cliff, your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I mean, oversight... You cannot have oversight. I mean, it's it's like having the hen. I mean, the uh, fox watch the hen house. You know, you basically trying to do your own internal audit. It all falls back to these same issues that have been proven not to work. You cannot take a man who says, "Hey, I've been working in the BOP for however many years, and he's the one overseeing it." We need a third party 
uh, you know, unassociated source to come in and say, you know what, we're just going in uh, blind and giving a report on what we find. Not, hey, I work here and this is my job, this is my livelihood on the line if I give a bad report. No, we need somebody to come in and say, I'm here as oversight to say what is really going on, it, but it, but you know what? My, it's the same thing that goes back to when they when they basically inform them, hey, you're gonna you're gonna have an inspection in a month. Well, if you tell me if we're gonna have an inspection in a month, I could have dead bodies laying everywhere. You give me a month to clean all that up, it's gonna look like oh, the the uh, this prison maximum uh, you know security looks like a, a child you know a pediatric ward. If you give me a month to clean it up. That is not the way to run an audit. An audit is you show up, nobody knows you're coming, and you do a true audit with a third party that has no affiliation, that has nothing to win, nothing to lose, just saying I'm coming in and I'm giving a report. Well, the reason – sorry to interrupt you, Cliff. I didn't mean to do that. No uh, problem. I'll tell you right now is that if, if the folks cannot see the system in the raw, then what you are seeing is a fabrication. It is not the truth. If you want to know what's going on, Lisa, you remember the show we did a couple of weeks ago on solitary confinement yes. and the horrors of that in federal prison? I do remember that. You, you, you as the director must have the ability to get the prison system out of the mess that it's in. Absolutely. That is your job. I don't care how you look at it. I'll tell you right now, folks, and on that point, on that point we are honored tonight. Uh, to have a very, very special guest. Uh, I'll tell you what, this gentleman coming up by the name of Mr. Bernard Carrick, uh, we need, you know, my vote's for him uh, <laughs> for the Bureau of Prisons Director, and I don't know if Mr. Carrick is looking at that, but I'll tell you, uh, I introduced Mr. Carrick tonight. You're talking about a gentleman with some experience that as I sit and was had the opportunity to go to his website, uh, I'm going to let him tell and talk about all that's going on. But a man, extraordinary man, that's doing some things uh, and was down in the trenches, Cliff, saying some things. That's who you need at the top to lead a nation and a, and a system that is, has gone awry. Uh, Mr. Carrick, welcome tonight to the program. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us, Mr. Carrick. And, uh, you know, our listeners, uh, we're excited to have you tonight. I think uh, it says here that uh, uh, you actually have – your resume is probably running over. I, I take it that if you went somewhere, they probably say he is absolutely overqualified uh, with your skill set uh, of what I've had the privilege to, to see, Mr. Carrick. And I'll tell you right now, uh, what a great, great uh, thing. And we, I want to thank you firsthand for the service you've given to the United States uh, for, for the work that you've done. Uh, not only as a uh, former military, uh, so a veteran uh, uh, of the United States uh, uh, servicemen here across the country, thank you for all that you've done and all that you will continue to do uh, to help the nation. And I, I'll give you the floor, Mr. Carrick, to introduce yourself to our listeners and what you're about and what your focus is. And how do, as we talk tonight about the corruption in the prison system at the top, uh, I'm sure you will give insight uh, to our listeners and to our audience tonight I give you the floor, uh, Mr. Carrick. Go ahead, please. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, for, first of all, I, for those that don't know me, I've, uh, I ran the New York City Police Department. I was the police commissioner on and in the aftermath of September 11th. 
Um, prior to that, I was the New York City Correction Commissioner. I ran Rikers Island for six years. And I took the reins of Rikers uh, in 1995 when we averaged about 100 and, 130 to 150 stabbings and slashings per month. In over a six-year period that I was there, we reduced that number by about 93% um, and created sort of an international model for efficiency and accountability within the jail or prison system. Um, unparalleled uh, successes in that system, uh, pretty much unparalleled anywhere in the country. And prior to that, I won't go through my whole resume because we'll be here all night. Um, as you said, I started out in the military, but I have been a, uh, I've been a cop, I've been a correction officer, I've been a federal drug agent, I've been a warden, I ran Rikers, I ran the NYPD, and at some point after that, I was appointed by President George Bush to take over the Ministry of Interior of Iraq in the aftermath and the fall of Saddam. Um, in 2004, I was nominated for Homeland Security to take over Tom Ridge's job. And I had a nanny, a domestic servant, um, that I had not paid uh, taxes, payroll taxes on. That started a litany of state and federal investigations and inquiries that went on for almost five years. Um, and the end result was I pled guilty eventually to eight felony counts uh, of false statement and tax charges. I was sentenced to four years in prison, um, and I'd served three years and 11 days. So fortunately or unfortunately, uh, however one wants to look at it, um, no one in the history of our country uh, ever, with my success, uh, my background, my experience, my insight into jail and prison management and policing, has ever been inside the American criminal justice system as I have. And that that is, you know, I'm not talking about just prison. I'm talking about being targeted, investigated, indicted, um, convicted, uh, then in the system, in solitary confinement. Um, and, you know, for me, it was an eye-opening experience, uh, you know, especially for somebody like me that I know I know the criminal justice system, and I, I thought I knew it extremely well. I thought I probably knew it better than anyone. And, and I'm going to be extremely blunt in saying that I have put a lot of people in prison. I put a lot of bad guys that did bad things in prison, people that tried to kill me, people that killed men I work with, uh, people I seized tons of cocaine from, millions in drug proceeds bad guys, bad people that did bad things. And then I went to federal prison and I met, um, I met commercial fishermen that caught too many fish or they caught the wrong size fish. I was, uh, I was actually housed, uh, in the same facility as a guy that sold a whale's tooth on eBay. I, uh, I met young black men out of Baltimore, 18, 19 years old, charged in a conspiracy where they possessed five grams of cocaine and for your for your listeners five grams of cocaine is the equivalent of like two sugar packets in a dunkin donut shop they were sentenced to 10 and 15 years in federal prison um and and i come to realize very quickly 
We are putting people in prison, thousands upon thousands of pe people in prison yearly that don't need prison to pay for their mistakes. And, and I want to be clear about this. Bad people that do bad things, they belong in prison. Some people belong there for a long time, and some, unfortunately, the best thing for society is to keep them in prison for the rest of their life. But I'm telling you, as somebody that's been in the out, in the inside and, and on the outside looking in, um, we're putting a lot of people in prison that make mistakes that they didn't know they made. We're putting people in prison that didn't need prison to pay for those mistakes. We're putting people in prison that violated some civil issue or regulatory issue or an ethical issue and a prosecutor somewhere turned it criminal and turned them into convicted felons. And um, we're taking them out of the workforce. We're taking them out of the workforce and we're creating a permanent underclass of American citizen because anybody listening to your show, anybody that understands what, what I've been through, what I know, and what I understand is that no matter what your sentence, if you're a convicted felon, you are punished for the rest of your natural life because of that conviction. And I don't give a damn if it's for catching too many fish or it's mass murder or it's possession of five grams of cocaine or it's selling a whale's tooth on eBay. You are sentenced to a life of collateral, personal, and professional annihilation. And until that changes, until the laws change, that's going to continue, and you're going to continue to see a dumbing down of American society. And and that has a lot to do with what's going on in this country today, I think. Um, so with that, I'm probably talking too much already. I'll shut up. And Absolutely you can not. not at all. <laughs> Mister. So you can. No, you're good. And, and, and I, I, I think that's definitely true. Uh, uh, former Attorney General Eric Holder made the statement, uh, Mr. Carrick, that we have too many people locked up for for uh, non what is what is the term? No good law enforcement reason. No good law enforcement reason. And when you talk about uh, these things and what you actually saw, I you made a statement that really uh, got my attention, uh, and it says here I learned that the deprivation of freedom is far more profound than one can imagine. And that going to prison is like dying with your eyes open. Mm -hmm. What brought you to that point, Mr. Garrett? Well, li listen, uh, you know, and, and I, I won't take credit for that. There was a, there was an inmate that was housed with me. His name was Eric Ring. And um, he and I had a conversation one day. And, um, and he, he basically looked at me and he said, this is, he said, this to me, this is like dying with your eyes open. And I, and I have to tell you, if, if that guy had said that to me, you know, prior to my experience, I would have had no idea what he meant. But I knew what he meant immediately. It was like getting punched in the gut because for me, I got it. I understood it. And basically, here's what happens. You go to prison. You, uh, you surrender your freedom. Um, your freedom is taken away from you. And from that point on, it's basically like you have died, and you get to watch your whole life around you go on without you in it. Your kids grow, they go to school, they graduate, they have parent-teachers conferences. Your uh, your children has uh, th they have babies. Um, your your you know you have deaths in your family. Everything and anything that goes on in your life today, as you know it, 
that stuff happens while you're in prison and there's nothing you can do to help your family, to be there for them, to support them. There's nothing you can do but watch. And, and I had some really difficult times. My brother-in-law, who was 50 years old, went into the hospital for a routine medical issue, and uh, and he died while he was in the hospital unexpectedly. Um, he had triplet boys 13 and a, and a son 18, and there wasn't anything I could do for his family. It was horrifying. My son is a Newark, New Jersey police officer. Um, while I was in prison, one of his partners, one of his friends, um, was shot and killed during a robbery. Um, it, you know, I buried more cops than any commissioner in the history of New York City, but I couldn't be there for my son when his partner got shot and killed. Um, this is the stuff you go through, and, and, and every prisoner goes through the same thing. You're treated in a, in a manner, you know, we have this, we, we have this hypocritical um, view of prison. You know, on the, on the outside, the congressional leaders and the prison administrators and the law enforcement administrators, they will say, well, you have to be punished, but we want you to maintain contact with your family. We, we want you to rehabilitate. We want you to come back a better citizen to society. Well, that all sounds real good. It sounds great. But the reality is none of that's happening. Um, you are sent too far for your family to visit. Um, you're paid 18 cents an hour as an inmate, uh, but they charge you 23 cents a minute for you to call your children. Um, if you don't know how to work a computer, uh, your, your only way to communicate with your family is to write. Uh, if you do know how to work a computer uh, and you can email your family, it's five cents a minute. So you have to be a speed typist uh, or else it's going to cost you a fortune. Uh, and you're not making any money while you're inside. So that's another burden on the family on the outside. So there's all these things that, you know, these hypocritical things that, you know, we say as a society, so, you know, the, the United States of America is the, the land of second chances. That's, is that true? No, it's not true. It's absolutely not true. Because if you're a convicted felon, you don't get a second chance. Okay. There's no second chances. That conviction lasts with you until the day you die. I was with a United States Marine. He was 21 years old. He sold a pair of night vision goggles on eBay. His own. He bought them, and he sold them on eBay. We put him in prison for three years because he happened to sell those night vision goggles to a broker, an international broker, who didn't have the appropriate permits to sell them abroad. So we put this kid in prison for three years. And I'll, and I'll tell you what happened. He came in at 21 years old. He was a Marine. And I mean a, a, a Marine from the word go. Shine shoes, starched prison uniform. Yes, sir, no, sir. A buzz cut haircut. He left in two years. He was supposed to do 30 months. He left in two years. He was a complete thug. He was hanging with the wrong guys. He was talking the wrong way. He learned all the things he should have never learned. All that Marine drill and ceremony stuff went right out the window. He left in 24 months as a thug. And here's the problem for our communities at large today. 
people say that we need to get these kids off the street, we need to put them in prison. If they're a first-time nonviolent offender, they've never had any violence, the worst thing you could do is put them in prison because prison is a training ground for thuggery and criminality. That's what it is. It teaches you how to lie, steal, cheat, manipulate, con, gamble, and most importantly, it, it, it teaches you and it encourages you to end any verbal altercation you have with somebody getting cut or beat down. Is that really what I want back in society? No, right. that's not what I want. Prison is a punishment for bad people to do bad things. But when you take good kids that made a mistake and you stick them in there for five years, six years, eight years, 10 years, 15 years, well then, you know what? Take those kids out and just execute them all. And don't they're doomed for failure. They're doomed for failure. We do that. We do it. And if the laws don't change, and this is a part of my what I'm trying to do now, if the laws don't change, then this is only going to get worse as time goes on. And there's there's tons of advocacy groups. And in your network, all the great work that you do and, and all the things that you guys focus on, you'll understand this probably better than most people will. You know what? There's thousands of advocacy groups around this country right now dealing with criminal justice reform. Mm. We're calling for it. You know, they're, they're working on transition back into communities. They're working on education. They're working on rehabilitation. They're working on all, all this stuff that's really needed and stuff that the government, our government, should be doing, but they're not. But here's the problem. If we don't change the law, if we don't change this this over-criminalization in this country today, if we don't knock that down and get rid of it, those people, all those advocates, are going to be doing the same thing 30 to 50 years from now with bigger numbers than they are today. We've got to change the laws. We've got to eliminate the mandatory minimums and sentencing guidelines. We have to give judges more discretion. We have to eliminate prosecutorial misconduct and hold prosecutors accountable when they violate the law to enforce it. There's a whole bunch of stuff that has to happen in this country today, and it's got to be done by changing the laws. And if the laws don't change, then all these advocates, they're going to be quite busy for some time to come. All right, and Mr. Carrick, can you come with us? We're going to go on the other side of this break. Can you come back with us? Do you have some more time to spend with us a little bit? Yeah, i got a couple more minutes. Okay, we're just going to take a quick break. We're going to come right back, ask you a couple more questions, and we'll definitely respect your time, uh, and we'll be right back with you. So stand by with us on the other side of this break. Ladies and gentlemen, this is AJC Radio, where without question, Mr. Bernard Carrick, one of the most dynamic, undisputed, and accomplished leaders in law enforcement today, has graced AJC Radio, and we're going to bring him right back. Looking for justice across a nation where our leadership has failed. We'll be right back. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. 
Call A Just Cause at 855-529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the Donate button. A Just Cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. A Bart police officer who shot and killed a man. When I first saw the Oscar Grant footage, like a lot of people here in Oakland, I was outraged. As soon as I heard about it and I went online and I seen what had happened, tears came down my eyes. It was something that was very alarming as a police officer and as a citizen of Oakland. It was like such a blatant murder. You have a city in trauma. Anyone that's seen that and looks at it is in trauma. My hope is that people will express their concern with police brutality, but they will do so in constructive ways that don't include violence. We cannot perpetrate this cycle of harm and violence in this community. Because we do have to live here and they terrorize the city and it's only going to make it worse for us. They killed our young you can protest, you can try to make a change, but there is a positive way you can do it. And make sure we let the police know and that we're aware, we're aware stuff ain't right out here. We're trying to fix it. In a way that is about using your voice for justice. And making Oakland a safer place for everyone to live, to live and get along as well. It's not just violence is not justice. Violence is not justice. Violence is not justice. We have a big problem and we need your help. It's happening on college campuses, at bars, at parties, even in high schools. It's happening to our sisters and our daughters. Our wives and our friends. It's called sexual assault and it has to stop. We have to stop it. So listen up. If she doesn't consent, or if she can't consent, it's rape, it's assault. It's it's a crime, It's, it's wrong. If I saw it happening and I was taught you have to do something about it. If I saw it happening, I'd speak up. If I saw it happening, I'd never blame her. I'd help her. Because I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. Solution. We need all of you to be part of the solution. This is about respect. It's about responsibility. It's up to all of us to put an end to sexual assault. And that starts with you. Because one is too many. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. And tonight we've been honored uh, to have Bernard Carrick, uh, I believe, and quote, and, and you can quote me on this, to be an American hero and one who has had the ability to bring justice to a nation where leadership has fallen. Uh, but this is one leader that stood tall in the midst of adversity. And we bring him back, and uh, he has a couple of more minutes to spend with us tonight. And I tell you, they say time flies when you're having fun. And, uh, Mr. Carrick, it seems like you just got on the call with us. Uh, we're going to have to invite you back uh, to be with us. But we got two points we'd like to ask you, and we'll let you go out of respect for your time. Are you with us? Okay. Yes, sir. Okay. okay. And, Mr. Carrick, as you, I'm sure, uh, have seen on the news the last several months, and I want to go to an incident in New York City, uh, with Eric Gardner, the man that 
where controversy happened almost immediately. People were outraged at this man. Uh, and I saw the video. I saw no violence in this man. I saw no issues where they had to choke this man to death and they took a life. And the outrage started. And it's like that the domino effect took place in this country with black men dying in our streets across this country. When you see that with your experience uh, and the highest, you know, with the New York Police Department and what, what you did while you were there uh, and what you've done at Rikers to make some, I mean, the numbers are just astounding. What are your thoughts when you see that type of uh, unexplainable actions by police officers, in my opinion? How do, you, how, how do we address that? And where does, that, where does the root of that problem start? Well, I, I think it, for the, here's the way I do this. I, well, first of all, it, especially in, in these circumstances where there's questionable conduct and, and some of these things, in my opinion, um, there haven't been questionable conduct. There's There was a shooting in South Carolina where an officer shot a, a suspect. He wasn't even a suspect. The guy that got out of a car and ran and he shot him, right. wound up shooting him in the back. You know, to me, that that's not even questionable conduct. I mean, that was, it was an unjustified shooting. Um, in, in my opinion, uh, you know, maybe there's something there I missed. Maybe I didn't see it. Um, in the case of Garner and some of these other things, what I try to do is, is I try not to Monday morning quarterback these guys because I wasn't there and I can watch the video all day long, but you know what? Everybody responds differently, especially in the heat of the moment, especially in, in an act of violence, uh, in a case like Garner's, I, what I try to do is I look at that from an administrator's point of view. I look at it from a, a cop's point of view. One, the cops dispatched. They're called there because somebody basically reports a crime. Um, in this case, uh, as Garner's wife said herself and his daughter, um, they didn't think it was a racial issue. Uh, they knew him. They were... I wouldn't say they were friends, but they were associates. They knew this guy. They had locked him up a number of times before. Um, I can't answer um, for what the cops' actions. I can't, you know, would I have responded the same way those cops did? Probably not. I would say probably not. Uh, one of the issues I have, uh, and I said this from the beginning, uh, one of the issues I had with the event, that specific arrest, if the cops had different tools, if they had a t the use of a taser, if they had a taser on them, all that stuff would have been unnecessary. The problem with a guy like Garner is, uh, especially for cops, the, you know, those the cops that were there, you've got a guy that's 6'7 and weighs 350 pounds. The one thing you don't want that guy to do is start flinging you around and throwing you through some window. So I get the whole, we have to put him under arrest. He's been advised. He's resisting. You know, the choke hold, the, the takedown hold, whatever you want to call it, would I have used it? I I don't think so. But I can't, uh, you know, I can't say I wasn't there. I think the problem we have sometimes when we watch this stuff is once you tell somebody he's under arrest, there isn't a time where you could say, uh, you know what, time out. You're getting the best of me, and I can't get you in handcuffs, so how about you come back tomorrow, or, uh, or I'm just going to let you go, or whatever the case may be. That ain't happening not happening so the best okay. thing to do is you have to comply you may not like the officer arresting you you may not agree with what he's doing if you comply you could deal with that later but if you arrest if you resist 
and that resistance escalates, and the cops have to use force, there's no telling where that force is going, and that's where we run into problems. So that's okay. the best I can explain it. No, I appreciate that, Dominic. Cliff had this last question for you, Mr. Carrick, and we will let you go and let you close out to our audience. Cliff? Well, I want to deal with, uh, you know, when you oversaw Rikers Island and, and how you guys, uh, you know, basically got crime to come down so low, uh, you know, inmate on inmate and things of that nature. And then we, we looked recently, we, we showcased a story about, um, you know, basically juvenile solitary confinement on Rikers Island. And uh, this one kid, you've probably heard of him, that after he got out after three years, never got charged with anything, they just let him out, that he ended up committing suicide because of the issues that he suffered uh, while there under solitary confinement. And you, you look at from when you administered Rikers and to what's going on today, and, and my question, I guess the only way I can put it is, what happened? What happened to what you set in place? How did we get to where the jail system and uh, the the state the New York State prison system uh, specifically, how did it get to the point where it is today? I mean, what happened? You set in place a perfect uh, you know format for it to be for it to be prosperous. Yeah, well, here's here's the thing. And the Daily News just ran an article the other day. The violence at Rikers last month was the highest violence in 15 years. Um, I left 15 years ago. That's when I left Rikers to take over the NYPD. And ever since I left, um, the leadership and the accountability and the programs of accountability within the system have been diminished. Um, you can't, for, first of all, Rikers is an enormous system. When I was there, I had 22,000 prisoners daily, 133,000 inmate admissions a year. We had unbelievable violence when I arrived. We had very little to none when I left. Um, when, and that was done through a number of different initiatives and programs. One, more searches, uh, holding the inmates accountable for criminal activity. You know, I, I remember two kids, two, two Hispanic men, held the black kid down on the ground, 18, 19 years old, a young man. And they carved with a chicken bone or a turkey bone, I forget what it was, they carved LK for Latin King, they carved it into this kid's back. And this was one of the first violent incidents that I, I had to oversee when I was there. And I asked my guys, what do we do with these guys now? And they said, well, they go to, they go to the shoot, they go to the solitary. And I said, yeah, but what do you, what do you do with them? What do you, what do we charge them with? They said, well, you know, we don't really charge them with anything because the, the prosecutors feel that this is jail and that's what happens in jail. And, they're, they're not going to get criminally charged. Really? If I walked outside the facility and slashed someone with, a, someone with a razor and gave them five stitches, I'd be charged with attempted assault, uh, assault, assault with a deadly weapon, possession of a weapon. I'd have five or six criminal charges against me for five stitches. These kids give a guy 180 stitches and you're not going to charge him? How's that possible? So what we started doing was holding the inmates accountable to make sure that if they did this, you light somebody on fire when the guy's sleeping, that's a crime. That's a crime. That's not good. You know, you take feces in, in urine, put it in a cup, and then throw it in another inmate's face or throw it in a, a staff member's face, that's a crime. Yeah. You can't do that on the street, so why do you do it in here? So we started addressing all these in-house issues, 
And then also, you know, giving the inmates more good time. Good behavior means good time. You get out faster. Um, you ha- there has to be an incentive for good behavior. Today in the jail system, in prison system as, as we know it around the country, we, we slaughter these kids with, you know, uh, uh, abusive sentences. I mean, I mean cr- crazy draconian sentences. And there's really no incentive for good behavior once they get in. Well, that's wrong. You want them to be better people. You want them to, to adhere to the rules. You want them to do what you need them to do. There's no incentive for them to do that. And then they get inside, and they're dehumanized. They're degraded. They're demoralized. Um, they feel like they have nothing to live for. Um, you know, it's just in a sickening environment. And then you wonder why they don't behave themselves. And then in that other case you're talking about, you stick your kid in solitary confinement. Now, I want, to, I want to be clear about this. There is a need for solitary. There's a need. If you are a threat to an institution or a threat to staff or other inmates, and you're constantly violence-prone, well, they've got to put you somewhere because they can't put you back in general population because every time you go into general population, you cut somebody up or you light them on fire, whatever the case may be. Those guys need solitary. They need somewhere to go. But I, I have to tell you, when you take a young guy who violated some minor institutional rule and you stick him in solitary confinement for 60 days or 90 days or 120 days, in my case, I was put in solitary confinement for 60 days and told I was, it was for protective custody. You know what? There's ways to, to protect people inside the institutions without solitary. That's right. Solitary takes all your rights away. It takes your communications with your family away. It takes your contact with anybody that that speaks away, and uh, and it basically it's a mind-altering experience. It should not be abused, and right. in this country today we abuse it a lot. Yeah, no, absolutely. And Mr. Carrick, and and we're, again, we're going to let you go. We we do respect your time. We do have one caller, I believe, that has a question or a comment for you. If you can bear with us, uh, yep. if that's okay with you. Okay. Cliff, who do we yep. have on the line? All right. We have the truth on the line. You have a uh, question or comment for Mr. Carrick. You're live. Hello. Are you there? Okay. okay. There we go. Yes, we can hear you. Truth, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, we, we have now. now. Yeah, I got you. Yes, Mr. Tarek, I would like to ask you, in retrospect, after going to Rikers Island, uh, what would you say was the most effective thing that met, that was done that caused that prison to come down from 93% to such a low percentage that we might know and maybe others listening tonight would know in these prisons there are ways to combat the violence inside the prison. So uh, you being having spent time there and having been on the other side, uh, what would you say was the most effective thing that you did or was able to accomplish 
that changed the entire environment in that in Rikers Island? Well, here's here's one of the things that was most effective. And and keep in mind, as an administrator, if you reduce violence, the jail becomes a livable place. Jail is a horrible place, especially when it's violent violence. But it's horrible anyway. As I said, and as you guys mentioned, the deprivation of freedom is far more profound than anything anybody could imagine, especially if you've never been there before. So that in itself is horrendous. Then if it's violence prone and you have to worry about getting cut or stabbed or, you know, beat up or beat down or whatever the case may be, that's this constant mental brutal torture. So you have to eliminate the violence. You have to go out after the predators. You have to eliminate the gangs. You've got to seclude the gangs. You've got to take the gang identifiers. You've got to break the gangs down. You can't let, let them run the institutions. You have to do more searches, get rid of the weapons. You have incentivized programs for inmates that are, one, behaving themselves, two, cooperating and doing what they have to do, giving you information. This stuff all helps. And what it does, basically, is as the violence comes down, you will see... Inmates going into classrooms for different programs. You'll see inmates going to boot camps. You'll see inmates going to religion. You'll see inmates doing things that they want to do, but they're scared otherwise not to do. And then on the staff side, as violence comes down, you're going to see overtime come down. You'll see staff assaults come down. You'll see staff confrontation with inmates come down. All that stuff changes. If you secure the institution, all that stuff changes. And it works. I, I proved it worked. It was a, over a six-year term. We had unparalleled success in this country. And, you know, it's, it's all about leadership, accountability, and, uh, and stuff like that. But, but, guys, before I hang up, I want to go over five things that I'm focused on. And I think this is, this is right up your rally, but I want people to hear this. Um, overcriminalization. We, as a country, we've got to repeal and revise these draconian sentencing guidelines. Um, we've got to focus on the mandatory minimums and the sentencing guidelines and the expansion of federal criminal code today that takes ethical violations and civil violations and regulatory missteps and turns it into criminal conduct. We've got to address prosecutorial misconduct. We have a system today that grants unbridled power to prosecutors and promotes them based on their, on their conviction rates, and there's no accountability for misconduct. None, almost none. Uh, we have to have accountability in the prison systems. Um, pr accountability of the inmates and accountability of staff. We have to make sure that the inspector generals are doing their jobs. We spend an enormous amount of money in these prisons. A lot of it's wasted. Uh, fraud, waste, abuse, corruption. Um, the prison population, we have hundreds, if not thousands of people in the federal prison system today that are dying. They're dying. They're old men that are dying. They're not there for violent crimes or, or murders, yet we keep them housed. We, we just keep them housed. They're dying. Send them home. What do we have to keep them there for? Um, we have nonviolent, nonviolent first-time offenders sitting in federal prison for years on end, get them out. Get them home. Lastly, most importantly, and, and if there's anything that's going to help fix 
this criminal justice problem as a whole, we need rights restoration. Once you pay your debt to society, once you've done your time, once you've done your punishment, then give that offender back their full civil and constitutional rights. Nobody should lose their constitutional rights in this country unless it's for some extreme reason. If they're they're a murderer or they're a rapist or there's you know they're doing life in prison, I get it. But you know what? That U.S. Marine that sold those night vision goggles, he was 21 years old. If he lives to be 120, he's going to be a convicted felon until the day he dies. That thing is going to be on his record, and there's not a damn thing he can do about it. So these are some of the things I think this country should look at. Well, uh, Mr. Carrick, I thank you for that. And when we had talked briefly yesterday regarding uh, Director Samuel's comments that solitary confinement didn't exist in federal prisons. <laughs> Really quick, your thoughts on well, that as we get ready to go to break. Well, listen, I, 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 can't, I, can't, I can't answer for his comments, but I did watch his congressional testimony in which he had no conception what the size of a solitary confinement cell was. And right. to somebody like me, any, any jail or prison administrator, that's, that's one of the number one. You would know that answer, number one. Number two. For me, as somebody that lived in one of those cells, it was 12 by 8. That's the answer. It was 12 by 8. I know it. I counted it every day. I walked back and forth every day. I counted every crevice, every crack, everything on the window. I counted dust, for God's sakes. I know what was in that cell. I know how big the cell was. He should have known as well. Thank you. And yes. No, I just want to say, for him to say, there is no solitary confinement. I, since I've heard it, I have been. I, I mean, I've just been pissed off. I cannot fathom how the director of the BOP can make that statement and expect for the American people and of all people, Congress, to buy that statement. Well, I, I want to see him brought up on charges. Well, they didn't, I'm just being blind. Well, they didn't buy it. And uh, Mr. Carrick, again, I salute you tonight. Uh, thank you for your service. Uh, it, to the to the to the country, your service as a veteran. Uh, thank you so much for that. If you can hold the line, we're going to go offline and talk to you very briefly as we wrap up. Hang on, hang on the line for us, and we're going to let you go, ladies and gentlemen. Mr. Bernard Carrick, a champion. Thanks, guys. Thank you, sir, of justice. We'll be right back. Uncovering the corruption of the Bureau of Prisons in the United States of America. Mr. Carrick, thank you for your service. We'll be right back. The United States of America incarcerates more people than any other country in the world. In fact, the U.S. hosts more prison inmates than all other developed nations combined. As of 2010, the world population was over 6.8 billion people, with an estimated 9.8 million in jail. This figure, compiled by the International Center for Prison Studies, refers both to individuals held in jail awaiting trial and inmates serving time after sentencing. So there are 9.8 million human beings on planet Earth living inside of cages that we know of. In 2010, the U.S. was home to about 309 million people, 4.5% of the world's total population, but housed 23% of the world's prisoners. So take a moment to think about what this means. It means we imprison more people than enormous autocratic countries like China. We imprison more people than Russia. 
Compared to the size of our population, our rate of imprisonment dwarfs our closest allies, like the United Kingdom, France, and Canada. As of 2010, there were over 1.6 million post-trial inmates serving sentences in America's state and federal facilities. This number does not include those being detained pre-trial or those on probation. The most unique feature of incarceration in America is the large and active role of our federal government. In most countries, crime is reacted to at the local or regional level, whereas the American government finances and legislates a significant portion of law enforcement at the national level. State governments still do their fair share of incarceration, though. California and Texas incarcerate more than other states with over 171,000 inmates each. Florida is a close third with over 103,000 prisoners. But no single state locks up more people than the federal government with over 208,000 inmates. Perhaps the nickname Land of the Free, Home of the Brave, should be updated. Though I suppose you need to be brave to endure the highest likelihood of incarceration the world has ever known. Prisons are not what we think about when we think of America, and they shouldn't have to be. A free nation shouldn't imprison so many people, and a fiscally responsible nation can't afford to. With close to $40 billion a year in state correctional spending, the financial costs are obvious and staggering alone, but the human costs are often underappreciated. 1.6 million fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of American families are incarcerated. It's time for people to realize that the criminal justice system in America is desperately in need of reform. The racial composition of the prison population in the United States is very different from the population at large. If people are worried about inequality in America today, I think this deserves more attention in the discussion. Racial inequality in the criminal justice system gets ignored because it doesn't affect most people. In 2010, over 1.6 million people were in state and federal prisons in the United States. So, so 497 out of every... Federal government targeted, uh, prosecuted, convicted, six executives in, held back evidence, come on. hundreds of pages, submit to manuscripts, court circuit, 10th district, denying the writ of mandibus, read RP6, critical yeah. rights violations, scandalous, uh, their motivation is finished, they've been yeah. with major companies, the government, New York PD, DHS, potential customers, come on. faith potential, obtain funding from banks and angel investors with no success, uh, calm meltdown, finance, skeptics, so they hire staffing companies to fill the gap with yeah. every attention. To fulfill the contract, to the deal, when money come back, everybody paid the bills to wages, take care of all of that, no Friday, they got viable software, but you compare them to those with nothing to offer, prosecuted by the attorney's office, before the FBI got to start, investigating charges, skipping steps in the process, even barring the testimony of Andrew Alvarez, a witness, who could tell why any staffing company that could do with the restroom, credit check would stick out their neck, if there was no prospect, they could collect. 
when they really in the net, it all relates. So hard we still relate, state nothing about the vagueness of uh, federal law, do this from chaos, A underscore just cause. Read at rp6.org, 47205-9620, just blog. It's just us, but we don't gotta just talk. We can just walk through the course for the cause with one voice and just free them all. of America for nonviolent offenses. That's why I'm asking you to join the American Civil Liberties Union and help us in the fight to end mass incarceration. We spend over $80 billion a year incarcerating people. Alternatives to prison, like community service, drug treatment, and rehabilitation costs less and can turn lives around. It's time for fair justice. It's time for smart justice. And we need your help. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to AJC Radio in the search for justice, bringing the message of justice all around the world. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Lamont Banks along with Cliff Stewart, Lisa Stewart, as we have been graced by the presence of a, uh, without question, and I'm going to say it, said it earlier, one of the most dynamic, undisputed, controversial, and accomplished leaders in law enforcement, correction, and national security in the United States. And... Uh, I'll tell you this right now, for more than 30 years, Mr. Bernard Carrick served his country with distinction, honor, and valor, and most notably as the 40th police commissioner of the city of New York. And uh, I'll tell you what, Lisa uh, and Cliff, when you talk to somebody on that level, uh, Cliff, we were sharing earlier, 
uh, that Mr. Carrick actually says here um, that Mr. Carrick accepted a request by the White House to lead Iraq's provisional government efforts to rec- reconstitute the Iraqi Interior Ministry, which consisted of its National Police Service and Intelligence, Customs and Immigration, and Border Police, but he subsequently served as a national security advisor to His Majesty King Abdullah II of Jordan, President Barat Jagado of the Republic of Ghana. Mr. Carrick has conducted threat and vulnerability assessments for other heads of state and led crime reduction national security and management accountability assessments for the U.S. Justice Department, Trinidad, Tobago, as well as Mexico City. If when you run down not even all of this resume of service, man, I'm lost and without words in clear admiration of someone that knows what he's talking about. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is, like you said, this is the undisputed law enforcement officer of the of the century. <laughs> I mean, this and, and you know, you know what really uh, just kind of gets you, man, is. You look at his service record, and you just read, you know, maybe a quarter of what he's done in his life, which is still very extensive. I mean, the fact that he served his country, uh, he's a veteran, the fact that he's the 40th commissioner. I mean, this is the commissioner during the 9-11 attack, and then you put a person like this in prison for tax fraud? I mean, for and you're not talking about taxes that, you know, he made some millions and billions of dollars. You're talking about taxes on... Uh, for his nanny, that right. it's like, how about give him a fine, let him pay his taxes, and say because of your incredible record, uh, undisputed, just awesome record, we are going to, uh, you know, give you a fine, maybe put you on probation, make sure you pay your taxes, uh, you know, but put him in prison in well, solitary confinement. <laughs> this is it. This is sick. Here's what they put in prison. They says it says here. Served in the military police corps in Korea and at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. There he taught defensive tactics at the John F. Kennedy Unconventional Warfare Center to U.S. Special Forces and Special Operations personnel. After his military service, he spent four years in various security assignments in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. In 1981, he joined Passaic County Sheriff's Department in New Jersey, where he served as the commander of special weapons and operations and as warden of the of the Paseatic County Jail. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what you've read as far as leadership. We be we be we need this man in the White House. Yeah, I'm telling you. I mean <laughs> this is awesome and what what strikes me tonight, we have people in our society that can contribute to effective change in this country to fix the the the, the uh, problems that we have that can actually step in and do something but because politics comes into play and people begin to politically posture themselves Lisa we were sharing earlier uh, uh, that Mr. Kirk actually was uh, has been on Capitol Hill which we're very familiar with and Congressman Sitzenbrenner uh, in regards to judicial and prison reform Yes. He is he is sought out by members of Congress uh and his opinion means something. Lisa, when you see this, what does it tell you as a citizen of the United States that we got some pretty talented people, we just need to get them in place. 
Oh, absolutely. And another thing that I, you look at, you think you realize, you look at a man of this magnitude with the background that he has, and see that they put him in prison for something uh, so insignificant, if I can say, if I can use that word, as not paying some taxes on a payroll taxes for a nanny. You lock this man up with the with the experience that he has, with the knowledge that he has, with all that he has to offer. It's such a waste. I mean, it was a complete waste to have this man put away for any time. He had no business in, in prison, uh, in my opinion. Uh, it goes here. We all remember the nightmare of 9-11. Uh, we'll be addressing that here in a week or so. Uh, but here's what he did. He says, uh, in August 2000, Mr. Carrick was appointed the 40th police commissioner of the city of New York, responsible for 55,000 civilian and uniformed personnel and a $3.2 billion budget. Uh, his firm marked by dramatic reductions in crime, enhanced community relations, and his unflinching leadership and oversight as he led New York City through the devastating attacks on the World Trade Center on 9-11. He was uh, overseer of the rescue, recovery, and investigation. In 2001, he was one of the founding members of the Board of Trustees of the Twin Towers Fund, which raised and distributed $216 million to over 600 families related uh, the emergency uh, service workers killed 9-11. You put a hero. You put him in prison. You put him. If America will put a man at the, the statue of Mr. Bernard Carrick behind bars, ladies and gentlemen, you better watch out and get this system fixed because if he didn't stand a chance. That's right. The, I mean, average, in a, the average American who is targeted by injustice. Oh, yeah, you don't stand a chance. I mean, you, you look at this. He's considered one of the most decorated police commissioners in the New York City Police Department. In the line of duty, he has rescued people from burning buildings. He's been stabbed, shot at, saved his partner who had been wounded in a gun battle. He survived the terror attacks of 9-11 and a bombing plot in Iraq. He's been a target of, a target of many death threats. He's seen tons of cocaine and millions in drug proceeds from the Cali cartel. Brought cop killers, Colombian drug lords, and Iraqi terrorists to justice. What do you do with a man of this stature, America? Let's him lock him up that's and, a, that's and unbelievable. put him in solitary confinement. Lisa, your thoughts on this is, again, we are dealing with the corruption of the Bureau of Prisons. And I think we, Mr. President of the United States, as Mr. Charles Samuel steps down, we have a replacement by the name of Bernard Carrick. Uh, I believe that can fix the system on the national level, this is critical. Lisa, when you think about that, and I don't, again, Mr. Carrick, I apologize if I am uh, assuming that you would want to take that post, but uh, I don't see anyone as qualified to do such a thing but you. That's right. We nominate you. Lisa, your thoughts on that? Yeah, this man is, uh, yeah, there really aren't words. There really aren't words. He's just, it. His 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 background, everything that he's done, just he's accomplished so much. And after having been put in prison uh, for basically nothing, and to come out, he's still he's still just as focused as he ever was, and still working. I mean, still wanting to do everything that he can. That's good. Everything he's done was excellent for this. Everything and I mean, he just, he doesn't seem to, he doesn't seem to be losing momentum at all. He seems to be just plunging ahead and moving forward. And that's what, you know, when you look at his resilience that, you know, although he went to prison, he comes out and he still has the same tenacity, the same fight, the same uh, love and care for his for his country, for his fellow servicemen that 
that is what that is who he is. So that is what he does. I mean, you look at a man who has over a hundred awards for public and heroic service, including the New York City Police Department's Medal for Valor, twenty-nine other medals for excellent and meritorious service. He's been commended for heroism by President Ronald Reagan. Received the DEA Administrator's Award from the uh, Justice Department. Two Distinguished Service Awards from uh, Department of Homeland Security. Ellis Island Medal of Honor. An appointment as Honorary Commander of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire by Her Majesty Queen of... I mean, this man got... Uh, he's getting recognized by Queen Elizabeth sure. of the UK. Well, and then you put this man in jail? Well, check this out. And uh, you know what? When, when you talk to him... It sounds like that his vision has moved to another direction in a very good way. He has a vision of America. You fix Rikers right. Island. Folks, this isn't a country club jail where you go and play tennis and golf doing out time. Rikers Island is the equivalent, if you know anything about the HBO special Oz, that's where it goes. Uh, while Mr. Carrick is focused on trying to help and fix the, a problem in America... This is what BOP is focused on. Let's hear what's going on. We have yet another branch of the federal government poised to make a massive purchase of ammunition, including hollow points, which is an expanding bullet designed for maximizing tissue damage and blood loss or shock. Now, a new Federal Bureau of Prisons shopping list includes... 1 million 9mm Luger 124-grain jacketed hollow-point rounds. 1 million 9mm Luger 124-grain jacketed ball rounds. 1 million 9mm Luger 115-grain jacketed hollow-point rounds. 1.5 million 223 caliber 55-grain full-metal jacket rounds. 40,000 12-gauge Number four, buckshot, 27 pellets rounds. 185,000, 12-gauge, number seven, half-shot rounds. 10,000, 12-gauge, rifled slug, one-ounce rounds. And 55,000 cartridge, cartridges of the 308, 168-grain, boat tail rounds. This has all been listed in the solicitation on fedbizops.gov. I'll leave a link. You guys can see it for yourself. But it says down here, all ammunition must be new initial load. No reloaded ammunition will be accepted. So they won't deal with no reloads. It has to be all brand spanking new. And this solicitation will be available till about June 15th. Well, there you have it. You know... Cliff, Lisa, <laughs> who is if, the, <laughs> th th this falls at the feet of Director Samuels. Yeah, because who is BOP going to war so against? This, what is, country? This, this is my point. You are focusing on war, but not war to injure. I didn't hear an order for tasers or pepper spray no. or deferment. A million rounds of hollow point. Yeah, uh, one is, round of hollow point. Well, what did he say? Dead man. It's made. To, to maximize tissue damage. What is going on in America? Folks, you wonder why the mindset of correctional officers are to throw a man in a, in a jail and cook him to death. 
Well, obviously they're they're setting this up. It's like a million rounds but of hollow is, point nine millimeter. You're you're you are setting the mindset that we are here to now to execute. To, to every execute. That's the mindset of what's going on, folks. Cliff, we got another caller. Who do we have on the line? Yeah, we got the truth. You have a, a comment. You're live. Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. I was uh, thinking uh, about Mr. Carrick. When you put him away for three years, do you know how much time and how much more he could have contributed to our society as a whole while you got him tucked away in a hole in a prison? Uh, while murderers and, and drug lords and other people committing unbelievable crimes are serving a short period and coming out, I, I I cannot even comprehend. You know what? Somebody had it in for him. Because you cannot comprehend a man that has done and accomplished the things that he has accomplished. You would never take a, a golden prize as that and put it into a hole in a prison when his, when, when his services and and the gifts that he has and the accomplishments that he has done uh, is just chucked away in a hole in a prison. It made me think about the IRP sex. They were fighting so and, and, and giving themselves and doing everything they could and working hard together and up late at night and all these type things, trying to do something good for the country. You know what? Something is very sick about this system that you put people that are trying to help our country, try to better it. I mean, this man's resume was so long until it almost seems like science fiction. It's just unbelievable what he has accomplished in his life. And, boy, I'm telling you, if anybody should be given that seat, uh, as a, and and he probably he probably doesn't even want it. How do we know? But if anybody should should be given that seat where Samuels have been sitting, this man could make a difference in the prison system that would be phenomenal. If you could go to Rikers Island, which is the worst prison in the country, and bring the rate down of crime from ninety three percent down to the lowest of the lowest. My God, what can he do with our, our, our Bureau of Prisons throughout this country, whether they be federal or state? This man is wise. He has knowledge. And, and you know what? Nobody can do it better than the person who has walked in your shoes, who has felt your pain, who knows what it feels like to be in a cell, and can tell you the exact measurement of it, and, and no doubt how many cracks was in the floor, uh, and you got him tucked away when this man has been almost royalty in this country. That is uncomprehendable. You think, my God, if they can do that to a person of that stature, and there's no outcry in this country. We better cry out, and we better cry out loud. And I so agree with him. Uh, 
We need prosecutors to be accountable. We need crooked judges to be disbarred and taken off the bench. A man like him who believes in doing it right, he can make a difference. I pray somehow that things would work out. I don't know if he even wants to be bothered with it, but I wish he would. There's a lot of people that don't want to, don't want to run for president probably would do a terrific job. Well, I tell you, if you read this man's resume and look at the accomplishments, it is phenomenal. Few people in the world could have accomplished what this man has accomplished in his lifetime. That was just, I just read and read and read, and the more I read, the more I wanted to read. I told him today, please go out there and get my books because I want to read his story more about it. But if ever anybody could serve in, in that office and make a change in our judicial process, that would be him. I, he is, I mean, my hat's off to him, and may God forever be with him. And hopefully the door will open that will give him the opportunity to continue to give to this society and to make a difference. Not many people in the world make a difference in the world. They're here, but they don't make a difference. This man made a difference. It is phenomenal. And I just, I'm just thankful that he came on our show. We are so honored to have had him tonight on a just cause. Uh, I, I, it's just unbelievable. Thank you so much. Thank and you. thank you uh, for that call. Cliff, as the caller alluded to, uh, this, is, this is just awesome. As we look at the decay and the crumbling of a system that continues to crumble, people continue to die, body bags continue to be filled as a result of failure at the top and in the leadership. And I had the opportunity to pull up uh, – BOP Director Charles Samuel's resignation letter. Subject, my plans to retire. Well, my indication or my thought of retirement is someone that has accomplished a great deal of something and has done something that warrants retirement. And usually you put some time in and you can look back and say, I've done some things. And I'll, I'll quote a couple of things. He says here, uh, I'm proud of the things we have accomplished. Working together, my tenure to continue the tradition of meeting our mission and maintaining correctional excellence to protect the American public. I offer many thanks and appreciation to all staff. During the past three and a half years, we have emphasized and enhanced staff safety, promoted partnership between labor and management through the entire agency. I have not heard yet how you have rehabilitated the prisoners Anyone. that you oversee. That's the Department of Corrections, if you will. I don't hear that. I hear political talk. Well, there's a reason you don't hear that. Because nothing's, I'm sorry, he couldn't quote the size. Mr. Carrick said 12 by 8. Exactly. You, you, and, and he said even before he went in, that was one of the critical pieces of information that you have to have as an administrator over such a place. If you're the administrator of Rikers Island, you're the administrator of any state, you're the administrator of the Bureau of Police, the director. They take direction from you on how to operate these facilities, and you cannot tell what size of solitary confinement well, uh, sale is. Mr. Samuels goes on to say that they requested, under his watch, an independent assessment and review of the Bureau's restrictive housing policies and procedures. 
established re-integration, re, uh, excuse me, in mental health units, increased our efforts to support federal prison industries and, ins- and ensured transparency with our stakeholders and the media. Again, you're talking like you're president of a business. Exactly, your stakeholders and your the media. Your stakeholders. What about the people that you that you hold in prison on a daily basis? What about their families that are affected by the fact that they are gone? What about the fact that they don't have their freedom? What about the fact that they're supposed to be rehabilitated and not treated like animals and not, uh, you know, basically given to assault by other by other inmates or the staff that you oversee. What about that accomplishment and saying well, we we've eliminated uh staff harassment and assault. Where's that status? Well that's not there and we also don't have the statistics of the lawsuits pending Florence, Colorado. Is it what's the name of the prison here at Florence, Cliff? The the, uh, the ADX. The ADX. Multiple lawsuits pending. But we're not gonna mention that in resignation because it's not politically correct. But he says here, and this is what really gets me as we think about the IRP-6, as a result of our combined efforts, rates of assaults dropped as low as they have been in decades. In addition, we extended our work beyond the prison walls to collaborate with representatives in the communities to which inmates are returning and to strengthen families through meaningful inmate visitation with their children. He's full of crap. Let me tell you, from firsthand experience... That's a bald-faced lie. Oh. Because we have had reports at the Florence ADX facility where the, where, the, where the correctional offers harass the families over and over again uh, of the RP6. That's right. Me personally. Not, not even the other uh, family members, not just of the RP6, but the other other uh, inmates' families that, that we as uh, Just Calls have talked to, but... I went there, and unbeknownst to the correction officer, he did not know I was part of a just cause. He threatened me personally. Oh, no, but, but, but uh, Director Samuel says we have strengthened families through meaningful inmate visitations. When you harass children, your officers are assaulting minors. And guess what? Here's the kicker. You were made aware of this Indeed. by your staff, by your executive staff, who made false promises of fixing the problem. And the problem has persisted. See, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to tell you right now on AJC Radio, we don't hold back the facts, if you will. These are the facts that we have lived personally. And you say, well, what's this thing about uh, Director Samuels? The truth. That's right. That's right. The truth. And the issue is very clear. Director Samuels has failed at the head of the largest agency of federal prisons and oversight. And that's why Congress continues to call him in question. What are you doing? It's the political thing to say, we appreciate your service, Mr. Samuels. But we got some tough questions to ask you. And first of all, Senator uh, Al Franklin said, what's the size of the cell? What is the size of the cell? How, how difficult uh, is that? And Mr. Franklin turned around. He said, "Did I ask the question? Am I saying this wrong? <laughs> Did I ask the question wrong? wrong? Is there some part of the English language with you as an American native do not understand, Mr. Charles Samuels Jr.? You given when you're given a budget of almost seven billion dollars in one year, 
And the your your biggest uh you know your biggest accomplishment as the director of the Bureau of Prisons is your interaction with the media and the corporations, and the stakeholders, the, the stakeholders of BOP. What wow. what is a stakeholder of BOP but the the uh, industrial prison complex? Those people who pay for a given number of prisoners, a given number of beds being filled, so that they can have their product built. At the, by the hands of prisoners who, like uh, Mr. Carrick said, get 18 cents an hour, and they're they're building product for these corporations at less than uh, you know child slave labor. I mean, a, at least the children get a bowl of rice. Well, you're talking about 18 cents an hour, and then charge you 25 cents a minute to write an email. Well, I tell you what, the fires that are raging out of control across the country. This speaks again to the leadership. Uh, Mr. Samuels, that inmates, federal inmates, are fighting fires at $2 an hour. Fighting fires at $2 an hour. And I'm sorry, that's a misquote. Our research team just pointed out it's $2 a day. Wow. Can somebody do the math on that? $2 And how day. much is that an hour? You're talking about less than a dime an hour. All right. Now, now we've crossed the line of countries. I don't even know if other countries do that. A dime a day to fight a fire that you can die in at any second. But you know what they say? Well, just just get a group of prisoners out. And you know what? That's an incentive. And guess what? That's to get them out of prison. Because a lot of times judges will allow them to do that as an incentive. Well, if you do volunteer to do this, we'll go ahead and get you out of your sentence early. Some of them, though, will go right back to prison with false promises that they're going to get this and get that, they do it all the time and send them right back to a jail cell. I mean, this is absolutely uh, uncomprehendable, uh, what we're talking about. So this is something that, uh, that, that definitely needs to be addressed. And Mr. Carrick, uh, you talked about, uh, uh, Cliff, uh, the budget uh, that Director Samuels deals with. Uh, he was over a $3.2 billion budget in New York City. Right. In one city. Yeah, well, and you're talking about 55000 55, Officers that he oversaw. So you're, you're talking about the biggest police force in the country. In the country is, is uh, New uh, NYPD. That is the. I mean, this this is bigger than most federal agencies. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this has been a humdinger here on AJC Radio as we deal with the corruption and the failure to act by Director Charles Samuels of the Bureau of Prisons. And folks, this has been unnerving, but it's been it's been, it's been very informative. And we continue to answer the tough questions. What's gone wrong in America? What is going on across the land? This is AJC Radio bringing the message of justice all around the world. We'll be right back. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Do you know what this means? Do you? It means you can voice your opinion without censorship or restraint. It means you can say nothing at all. It means you can debate, protest, question, contribute, whenever, wherever. Take it. Embrace it. Say it out loud.
ladies and gentlemen, Mission Impossible is actually how some folks would categorize the nation and the prison system here in America. But tonight we found a special agent by the name of Bernard Carrick. And uh, I'll tell you what, in Mission Impossible, there's one person that could get the job done. Was his name Eaton uh, Cliff? Ethan. Ethan Hunt. Ethan Hunt. And I'll tell you. No matter how impossible it was, is, he's going to do it. But I tell you right now, Mr. Carrick brings that type of flavor and even much more to the United States Federal Bureau of Prisons and a man and a leader that uh, can definitely uh, get the job done. And uh, Cliff, as we deal with these issues, this has been very enlightening, not only to me, but I'm sure the American people across the United States. As we hear, it gives you a sense of hope and belief. And you got some good people out here. America needs to take advantage of that in a good way and not thank our citizens or our heroes by throwing them in a hole and calling it American. That's right. You don't. This you doesn't don't, sit right. You do not prosecute a hero. You, 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 you don't do it. You don't do it. Let him pay his taxes and move along with his life. And Lisa, we're going to close down, uh, uh, get to the point of uh, some of his other accomplishments. And again, uh, we were talking about the Bureau of Prisons of Corruption. Uh, and we've dealt with that in the failure to act by the Bureau of Prisons, but we found a man tonight that seems to be able to make a difference. And uh, Lisa, what are some of the other accomplishments excuse me, that he has had? Yeah, Mr. I'm, look- Carrick. I'm looking at his accomplishments while he was at the, uh, the police department in New York, while he was working there. This man did amazing things that I don't think anybody else would have been able to do. He uh, brought about a 4.3% reduction in murder a 12.2% reduction in major felony crimes, 74% reduction in felony shootings, and this is all in New York City, a 16% reduction in response time, 11% increase in gun seizures, a 13% reduction in officer shootings. He reorganized the gang division. He revised a stop-and-frisk policy to flag civil rights abuses. He reorganized the criminal intelligence division uh, and, yes, that's right, to merge NYPD and all federal intelligence databases. He commanded the NYPD response, rescue, and investigative operations during and in the aftermath of the attacks of 9-11. He enhanced community relations and office more officer morale, and he managed, like you guys said already a few times, a $3.2 billion budget. This man has done more than most people do in a lifetime. In just a few years, he did this. Well, that's that's awesome, and uh, wow, ladies and gentlemen, man, I'm 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 pumped up tonight. The change is actually uh, possible uh, in a system and in a world that a lot of low, a lot of excuse me, a lot of hope has been lost. Uh, and I think we have an opportunity. Uh, we want to thank you, folks, for joining us tonight. Uh, and Lisa, I believe uh, the IRP six are those that were wrongfully convicted, uh, and there are people responsible as. Uh, a result of their actions uh, that doesn't work and that took these men into uh, captivity. And you know what? I count them heroes just like I count Mr. Carrick, That's trying right. to save a nation from possible threat. Lisa, those are, that are responsible for the IRP-6 and the wrongful conviction, who are they? Please. We have U.S. Attorney John Walsh, Assistant U.S. Attorney Matthew Kirsch, Assistant U.S. Attorney Sunita Hazra, Attorney Greg Goldberg, Federal Judge Christine Arguello, Appellate Judge Jerome Holmes, Appellate Judge Bobby Baldock, 
Appellate Judge Harris Hartz, Federal Judge R. Brooke Jackson, Magistrate Judge Craig Schaefer, Court Reporter Darlene Martinez, FBI Agent John Smith, FBI Agent Robert Moen, Former Federal Agent John Epke, Former Federal Agent Gary Hilberry, Attorney Thomas Goodread, Attorney Clifford Barnard, Attorney Thomas Richard, Attorney Robert Berger, Attorney Mitchell Baker, Attorney Boston Stanton Jr., Attorney Rick Kornfeld, Attorney Mark Garagos, and Susan Holland of ETI Professional Services. Okay, Lisa, thank you for that. And uh, folks, go to AJCRadio.com for archives of our weekly broadcast, and you can also go to Live365.com, 24 by 7 AJC RP programming, uh, the Progressive Radio Network as well, uh, Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time, also on the PRN-FM Network, the 405radio.com uh, on the demand programming, and iTunes on demand programming as well. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and uh, additional update news about it, just calls, you can go to freetherp6.org. Awesome website there. Go out there. It is amazing uh, what we're looking at there. So, folks, thank you for joining us tonight. Cliff? Yes, I want to say thank you to uh, our production team, Captain Powell and Dustin Jackson of K&D Productions. They got the honeycomb kids are really pulling it together, making sure that everything's running right in the control room nowadays. Also, we got the production support team. They're bringing us accurate and up-to-date information so that we can pass that on to you, and we appreciate them for that. To the truth, we know you're out there. We appreciate it. Okay, and thank you for that, Cliff, and a very special thanks to, I believe, the Honorable Bernard Carrick, a gentleman that has has blown our minds tonight, someone that can make a difference in the nation. Mr. Carrick, thank you so much for joining us, uh, and we appreciate you a great deal for your contribution to this program tonight. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, again, this show is dedicated without question to the IRP6. David Banks, Gary Walker, Kendrick Barnes, Demetrius Harper, Dave Zappolo, and... Clinton Stewart. Clinton Stewart. Thank you, Lisa, for that. It's been a, it's been a long evening. Folks, our prayers and thoughts are with the RP6, but every show in this show and every show dedicated to the RP6 as we seek justice for them and we bring the message of justice all around the world. Good night, America. Good night. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for holding this hearing. I I think everyone here shares a number of common objectives, wanting to ensure that that all federal prisoners are held in a humane manner that respects their inherent dignity as human beings, uh, and at the same time that upholds the objectives of sound penological policy, uh, both allowing an opportunity for rehabilitation when possible uh, and ensuring to the maximum extent possible the safety of other inmates. Uh, Mr. Samuels, I appreciate uh, your service. Uh, 
uh, and your being here today and, 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 and engaging in this important discussion. And I'd like to ask some questions to further understand your testimony and, and, and the, the scope uh, of solitary confinement within the federal prison system. Uh, you testified there are roughly 215,000 inmates in the federal system, and that compares to about 1.2 million incarcerated in various state systems. And am I correct that the overwhelming majority of the 215,000 in the federal system are in the general population at any given time? Given time? Yes, sir. The majority of the inmates are in general population. Also, the majority of the inmates in our system spend their entire period of incarceration in general population. We're only talking about a very, very small percentage. Right now, 6.5% out of our entire population is in some form of restrictive housing. And when you break that number down, as I've mentioned, administrative detention, which is temporary, and also with the disciplinary segregation, they're given a set number of days and or months that they have to serve. In a prison environment, and, and I would hope that everyone understands, it's all about order. And if we do not have order, we cannot provide programs. We're constantly locking down our institutions. Since the hearing in 2012, we have reduced our restrictive housing population by over 25%. Within the last year, we have gone from 13.5% to 6.5%. The reductions are occurring. We are only interested in placing individuals in restrictive housing when there is a legitimate reason and justification. Those who say to me, stick to civil rights, I have another answer. Others can do what they want to do. That's their business. Other civil rights leaders, for various reasons, refuse or can't take a stand or have to go along with the administration. That's their business. I'm afraid of that. No, no, that's the... Injustice anywhere is the... 